Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Reverend Michael B. Beckwith. Michael is the founder and spiritual director of the Agape International Spiritual Center, a trans-denominational multicultural community based in Los Angeles. And if you live in Los Angeles or you're just visiting, I really just can't recommend enough the experience of going to Agape on a Sunday morning. Now, Michael's sermons are really just nothing short of transformational. He, he truly has this ability to channel some greater spirit. His eyes kind of roll back into his head and he is just a conduit for something greater. And uh, the congregation, if you can really call it that, is such an interesting group of diverse kind of spiritual orphans, if you will. And there's often live music and curated guest speakers. You know, when I went for the first time, I thought to myself, this is really what church was meant to be, full of inspiration and laughter and community. So check it out. So in March 2020, Commune released a program with Michael called Meditations for Life's Challenges. Now, when we recorded it, little did we know that we'd be facing the unprecedented fear, anxiety, and social isolation of COVID-19. So Michael's program was a really a buoy in the choppy seas of early lockdown for so many. And of course, it remains highly useful today. So in our discussion, Michael and I explore many of life's challenges and the ability of a meditation practice to address them. As you'll hear, Michael and I really have a great synergy and very much enjoy our repartee. I recently appeared on his podcast titled Take Back Your Mind, so you can pop over to his show and check that out if you're so inclined. Uh, before we dive in, if you want to hear Reverend Beckwith um, and his meditations, you can check out his commune course, Meditations for Life Challenges. But just before we dive in, if you want to hear more from Michael Beckwith and learn how to let go of fear and live with purpose, well, you can check out his commune course, Meditations for Life's Challenges. Just go to onecommune.com slash challenges to watch his course for free for five days. Additionally, if you're interested in other courses on meditation or functional medicine, nutrition, gut health, Ayurveda, yoga, well, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire treasure trove of courses. It's more than 130 programs on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite pod catcher. It really does mean a lot. Okay, without further delay, I present to you the esteemed Reverend Michael B. Beckwith. Michael Beckwith, what a treat. Thank you for being here. It's my joy to be with you. Yeah, we always have a 
great connection. I was recently visited you. Right, right. Um, at your studio. Yes. And uh, you've launched your podcast fairly recently, but you're off to a, a massive start. I know. It was quite... Uh, I, did, I didn't know what a good start was until someone told me. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best way to go into it. Yeah. Um, I think I saw my friend Tommy Rosen. Yeah. was on. So. Yeah, yesterday. Oh, yesterday. Yeah, it was yesterday. Oh, wow. He came to the studio yesterday. Yeah. See, I got my finger on the pulse, man. Yeah. Yeah. But this is Take Back Your Mind. So Take back uh, your mind, yeah. everyone needs to tune into that. Um, so we've, we're long-term collaborators now. Um, some three and a half years ago, we collaborated on a course for commune called Meditations for Life's Challenges. Has it been three and a half years? Well, it was funny because I was doing my research this morning and it came out in March, 2020. Okay. Right in the middle of uh, the lockdown. Right. Of. at Basically at the beginning of anchoring into port lockdown. Right. And, um, and that was right on time. Yes. I got a lot of feedback from that. Well, just think about the challenges yes. that people were facing at that juncture, fear, anxiety, isolation, loneliness. Yes. Um, and guess what? <laughs> Still useful. <laughs> still useful. People, people are still navigating their way from those moments of isolation. Yeah. There's still, in our society, there's a, a kind of a, a normalization of anxiety or worry. Right. It's become n normalized to a degree. It's, it's, it's like that becomes a, like the conversation of what the people are concerned about or what they're worried about. Hmm. And if you're not in that conversation, you're kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. And we're on a trigger almost, mm -hmm. you know, and, and this is a product of the attention economy or the persuasion economy, et cetera, that's essentially rigged to yes. trigger us. Absolutely. Um, and, and there's business models yes. built on that. Um, <clears throat> but I, I heard uh, just to underscore how, how much utility there is to a meditation practice. I heard you, I think, talking with Sean Stevenson, mm -hmm. and you were recounting uh, an experience from maybe three or four years ago when you were going to a movie theater and some guys pulled up behind you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and you would tell that story because I was like, this is not just meditation in practice. This is meditation in action. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was me and one of my ministers, Kathleen McNamara. We were at the Arclight Theater. And I pulled into park and we were waiting for a person to pull out so we could pull in. And the guys behind me blew their horn. There's nowhere I could go. And uh, anyway, they started calling me the N-word. And it was like, and Kathleen said, she, Kathleen was shocked. She said, do people still do that? I said, yes, Kathleen. I've been black a long time. <laughs> this still happens, <laughs> you know. I mean, it wasn't funny. No. But, um, and I just relaxed. And uh, he says, you going to do anything? I was like, no, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just mm. relaxing. You know, they're not getting out of their car. I'm not getting out of my car. Eventually, and I parked, and then they shouted it again as they were driving away, mm. you know. But <clears throat> I didn't feel offended because I had nothing to defend. You know, you, you feel offended if you're defending something. And I didn't 
they were, they were calling me a name that had nothing to do with me and how I identify myself. And I realized, obviously, I wasn't thinking those thoughts at that particular moment. But in speaking here with you, I'm, I'm aware that they're living in ignorance. You know, they have a myopic perception and they're sick. Yeah. You know, so I can't take on their sickness and react to that. Now, maybe when I was a teenager, it may have been a different story. Sure. You know. Uh, I may have reached in my glove compartment looking for something, you know, <laughs> but there was like, well, and you may have had an impact on them going forward by essentially disarming right. the insult by not reacting to it. Yeah. Right. I mean, you, I think you followed up when you were talking with Shauna with a story about Dr. King yes. was, uh, was connected to that in some way. Yeah. was it, uh, uh, James Lawson, I was having a conversation with James Lawson, who was the, um, he was the strategist for the student uh, nonviolent uh, sit-ins. And he was telling me some beautiful stories. And he said, at one point, him and Dr. King went to this place, Dr. King was about to speak. And a man walks up to him and says, are you Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? And Dr. King said, yes, I am. And he spat on him. And Dr. King looked at the spittle and took out his handkerchief and wiped it off and folded up his handkerchief very neatly and says, sir, I think this belongs to you. <laughs> and walked away yeah. and went up and did and went up and did his talk. And I remember sharing that in a talk one time and the artist in the room took that and actually turned it into a song called, I think this belongs to you. And they yeah. created a whole song out of, out of nonviolence and non-reaction based on that story of Dr. King. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you see, Across history, these examples, particularly in political movements, where the principles of ahimsa or nonviolence are applied, and they are so powerful because they are essentially morally unassailable. I mean, right. if Dr. King says, "Oh, here's your toxicity right back to right. you," yes, where does that? What is that? The change in consciousness for that person, absolutely is just profound. Yes. There was no fight. There was no, he didn't spit back on him. Right. <laughs> he just said, this belongs to you. It had to do something to that man. I mean, why was he at the presentation in the first place? Yeah. You know, what, he, there was some energy that yeah. drew him there. Yeah. Um, Alan Watts has a number of very compelling parables about um, this the highest form of, of a samurai is practices the no sword school. Right. Right. And I think Ram Dass. Yes. He, he had a friend, I think his name was Terry Dobson or something yes, like that's that. Who he was, yeah. a, and um, martial artist. Yeah. And where the whole, the highest form of that is de-escalation. Yes. Right? Um, and there's a wonderful story. I mean, you could tell it if you want about, it. I think he was on, he was the, on subway. the bus. He was on the subway. Yeah. And he, Terry go, talks about the fact secretly he wanted a reason to fight his ego. Right. Cause Even he was though, an Aikido, Aikido, Aikido guy. I think. Yeah. yeah. But he really, he wanted to have a reason. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I've done all this work. <laughs> so, so this guy gets on the, on the, on the subway and he's drunk and he, he knocks over somebody. I think he even knocks over a pregnant woman or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, he, and, he, and Terry lights up, says, Oh, here's my opportunity. <laughs> and, and he does something. He blows a kiss at the guy like, and the guy's now focused on Terry and he's upset. He starts to lumber over to him and Terry's red. He's going to let him throw the first blow, of course. 
before he takes him down. And and this guy says, hey! <laughs> and everybody turns around, there's a small, small Asian man is sitting there. He says, hey! You like sake? How you doing? Come sit down. And the guy sits down next to him and he can smell this sake on his breath. He says, you, you like sake? Says, yeah, yeah, I like sake. I like sake too. He says, me and my wife drink sake. He says, and my wife, she died of cancer. I lost my job. So the guy sobs and tells this whole story mm-hmm. about why he's acting like this. And ultimately, the, 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 the man invites him over to his house for dinner, I think. Mm-hmm. And Terry goes on to say that was the best Aikido he's ever seen in his life. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know what? Quite recently, my godson has two boys and they are martial artists mm-hmm. as well as great basketball players. And they were playing basketball in, you know, and it got very tense uh, to the point where the, the fans were yelling out things and fisticuffs was about to break out. And this one guy kept wanting to fight my godson's son. Mm. He was having no part of it. He's, you know, he's martial arts. He knows he could. And so this guy was on him and he's about to hit him. His brother runs from the stands, runs all the way across the court because he's not going to allow his brother to get beat up. Gets to the point and hugs the boy. And the boy slumps in his arms and starts crying. Wow. That's everybody in the stand started to cry. Oh, man. And the whole energy of the game changed from antagonist to these are just teenagers playing basketball. And then they came up after the game and, and, and talked to my godson and his wife and said, who are you? Your kids. We never see anything like this. They didn't. They weren't going to fight. And your son hugs this guy, you know. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they were able to just share, you know, my, my godson grew up at Agape. His father was Nirvana Gale. He was a great minister. And um, it changed the whole dynamic, love. Just, so when I asked him about it, he says he had no idea what he was going to do. This was not premeditated. He knew he, knew he was not going to allow this boy to beat up his brother. But he didn't know he was going to hug him until he got yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, well, he had made the conscious yeah. unconscious right. on some level. It's funny because uh, I, I did, we did a project with um, Huron and Henry Gracie. Um, they're kind of, uh, their grandfather, I think, founded Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Ah. And um, we had gotten into a conversation. I was really coming at it from a mindfulness place. They were coming from it from a grappling space. Right, right. And they were, they were describing it to me on a podcast. And they're like, well... You know, BJJ, it's all about managing the space. Mm-hmm. He's like, and he asked me, it's like, where are you most susceptible to a punch? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, when you're standing just a few feet away from someone and someone can leverage their entire body weight and boom, right? right? So he's like, listen, if someone insults you or threatens you, there's two ways to go if you want to manage the space. You can go back, mm-hmm. disengage. Mm-hmm. And then they're just flailing. Right, right. And they're making themselves tired. Right. Or you can go in real tight. Close, right. And that's what your godson did. He came in real tight. Right, right. And hugged them. And physically, there's nothing you can do when someone's hugging you. You can kind of like right. bat them on the back a little right. bit, but you're, you don't have any leverage. Right. But really emotionally, it's just like, oh, God, you just let go. The guy just cried like a baby. 
Yeah. And kind of where I'm headed here is, uh, you know, there's obviously the, the famous Victor, Victor Frankl quote said between stimulus and response, there's a space and in that space lies your liberation. Right. But we have to cultivate that space. Yes. And meditation is one way to do that. So how, how do you, what's your practice look like? How do you cultivate that space? Well, it begins in the morning when I, when I, when I wake up and when I put my feet, when I get out of bed, I put my feet on the ground, I go, I cultivate a sense of gratitude that I exist. I don't, I don't attach the gratitude to anything. I'm alive. I'm grateful that I'm alive. I do it, take a deep inhalation and I am grateful. And then I say, um, um, something like, um, give me the strength to handle whatever assignment comes my way. Then I do a little, I do some basic exercises, physical exercises. Mm-hmm. And then I drink a tall glass of water, warm water with lemon and uh, minerals. And then I go, med- I actually go through a formal meditation. Now that first meditation is 22 minutes and 22 seconds. Mm. I come back into the kitchen. I make a special blend that I drink. Then I go to the gym and do a full workout. When I come back home, uh, I will um, shower, get ready. Then I'll do another meditation, depending on my time, what, what, I'm, what I have on the calendar. Mm-hmm. But I'll do another meditation. It might be longer, it might be shorter, depending on what's on the calendar. But meditation is my go-to. It um, gives me a, a baseline of equanimity, a baseline of connection. And, and it, it's allowed me to, to look at Everything's coming up in my mind, my awareness, my emotions, everything. I'm able to just watch it all without participating in it. Mm-hmm. And then and then sometimes it's more specific. I may be available if I have a particular assignment that I'm going to do and I need to catch an idea, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so then that becomes a different kind of meditation. I'm open myself up to catch an idea. I got to go do a talk on something. I don't have anything. I love that. You know, just just catch one out of the blue. Let yeah. it, let it spontaneously yes. arise. Yeah. I need a. I need a. What I need is like a sentence, you know. And this sentence will carry me down a corridor, in tributaries, of information, that may not come to full bloom until I'm actually speaking, mm. but at least I'll have a starting point. Yeah. You know. Well, you trust yourself now. Yeah. Pretty okay. implicitly after thirty. Five years? Uh, with agape, it's been 37 years. 37 years. And, but yeah. I've been teaching about 40. Yeah. I think so. that's an interesting approach to creativity. Yeah. Often it helps to have a prompt, you know, versus yeah. an empty page. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I think we're so conditioned in our society to push, 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 push. And so often, you know, wisdom just arises in the spaces. Yes. And if you can create that space for yourself, you're spacious enough, you know, intrinsically there's wisdom here. There's, there's intelligence and there's love. It's here. It's not out there, but individuals are so crowded with their own opinions, their points of view, their positionalities, their perceptions. It's, and they, and individuals have a tendency to think that that's who they are. They think they are their opinion, right? They don't know how to hold it loosely. You know, they think they're their opinion, their points of view, and they'll, the ego will actually fight for this opinion and fight for this belief. And they don't realize it's all transitory. Yeah. You know? And so, yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, we live in this world of confirmation bias, right? So we look for data right. and evidence to support a, a you know, pre-held opinion instead of the other way around Absolutely. being open to new evidence as it, as it emerges. Um, and uh, because, of course, we do want to satisfy this symbol that we have for ourselves called the ego. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> have different um, metrics that makes them happy. So somebody might, their, their happiness is based on the fact that somebody thinks they're smart. Mm. Somebody's happy because they have more money than somebody or they have a bigger house or they have a better looking body. You know, people have a tendency to get their happiness based on some type of external stimulus. Yeah. But when you become spacious, you just find that you can just be happy. <laughs> That's right. I think Teddy Roosevelt said, comparison is the invisible thief of joy. Yes. Um, it, it, do you ever find yourself comparing? You know, are, are you beyond that? Or, or what are some techniques, for example, once if one were to get sucked down, you know, that, that quicksand? Because well, I, I'm not immune to it. Yeah. It, but, but first of all, the, back to your first question, mm -hmm. I don't find myself comparing but I'll, I can be inspired by somebody. It's like if I see something that I haven't seen before or somebody's doing a particular thing that it may, I said, that's sweet. That's nice. That's a great idea. You know, I may even tell them, I said, you really inspired me. You know, I'm not going to do what you're doing, but you've inspired me to expand what I'm doing in a different way. So it's not like comparison, but it's more like, He's doing that really. I like that, you know, yeah. and, and it, 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 it makes me inspired. It gets me inspired to to keep growing, to not settle with what what I'm doing at this particular moment, you know. Right. Well, because you're not seeing your unfulfilled potential in that person. No. You know, you're not in that space. No, I'm not. I'm not because you're absolutely secure with yourself. You're not yeah, lonely with yourself. I, I I'm secure with myself, but I also have a. I, one thing I do have is a critic of, of me. I'm very critical of myself. Of yourself. Yeah. Not <laughs> as bad today as I was maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And I became aware recently of the critic. Uh, just celebrated my birthday at Agape uh, in July. And there's a lot of attention on Michael. Generally, when I'm speaking and doing my work, I know how to not have the attention on me. I have the attention on the message. I'm reflecting a message back to the people so that they can get something that's going to change their life. I'm not really trying to get the attention on Michael. I'm getting the attention on, on a message, on a principle, or on a practice. But for the birthday, it was all Michael. You know, Michael's the founder of Agape. Michael's been doing this 37 years. Michael, 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 Michael. So I had all this attention on me, which was interesting. You know, it was all positive attention. And then the very next week I fly to Miami and I was, um, I found out that I was um, a, one of the three finalists for the Spiritual Leader of the Year Award um, given by Forbidden Knowledge. There's an organization by uh, Billy Carson. And I'd heard about it. People were writing in all around the world who their spirit, favorite spiritual teachers are. So he called me and tells me that me, Deepak, and a Tim Story with a three finalist. So I'm, I'm surprised. Mm -hmm. 
I say, well, you know, obviously it's going to be Deepak's going to get this, you know, he's got 20 million <laughs> followers or whatever. So I, I fly down there and uh, so I get the, I win. You know, I'm looking back, talking to somebody and I hear my name, Michael Beck. <laughs> I hear Michael, Michael Beck. Like, what? What? So I go up, I have nothing prepared. I speak, you know, receive the award. I'm very grateful, very thankful. And um, so it was all this energy coming at me and it bumped up against my critic. Mm. I, I, it became a, I became aware of the critic based on all of this positive input. And, I, and, and it made me like just relax and say, you know, Michael, you're all right. You know, you've done a lot in your life. You've helped change a lot of lives. Give yourself a break, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and there were so many positive stories that people came, people I didn't know. At Agape, I know a lot of the people. But people that had traveled from around the world to meet me, you know, and their stories of transformation, mm-hmm. tuning into Agape and, and different things that, you know, commune, you know, there were people telling me about, oh, I really needed, you know, those meditations. Um, it just re- made me look at myself and kind of put the critic to the side. Says, you know, just relax and just receive this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll say just on the commune front, I think there have been 150,000 people that have registered for that course in some form or another. Wow. I mean, we try to democratize access to, to these yes. praxis. So we offer five days, I think, of it's a 10 day program. We offer right. five days for free. Right. Just because we want to get people into it. Absolutely. And if they can afford it, that. great. You know, you can buy it. But, um, but I, yeah, I mean, it's just to the legacy that, that you've created around that. It's just remarkable. Um, but it's interesting, you know, th- that part of ourselves that, that does enjoy some ego adulation from time to time. But it, it's the same part of us that then also can feel disappointed. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, when under kind of further examination, we know that that part of us is anchored in some sense in the ego, you know, like we can feel great in the morning. We can mm-hmm. feel awful in the afternoon. Right, right, right. <laughs> there is something fleeting about um, how we experience emotions. And I think this is one of the gifts of meditation really is that it provides that layer of awareness up here yeah. where we can just, you know, perceive these phenomena you come can, and you go. Can, you can observe it. And I don't call it becoming detached from it. I call it non-attachment. Mm-hmm. Detachment is not playing at all. Yeah. But, but non-attachment is living as full as you can, but without an attachment to the outcome. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I, I, I used to teach years ago, I still teach it, but I, I used to teach um, the fact that you look at criticism and praise <clears throat> as the two imposters. You know, you don't, you don't run towards one and you don't run from the other. You just become aware of them. You become aware of the praise. You're not trying to get praise, but you're aware of the praise. Thank you very much. But you're not trying to get it. You don't want to become addicted to it. And you get the criticism. Thank you very much. You don't run from it. You learn from it. Mm-hmm. So you just you just stay open to that, to that vibration. But you're right. Meditation creates the context for you to look at all of that. So when you do get caught in the eddy of the ego, mm-hmm. you, you, you come out faster. You're not in it for days, you know. It's just like, ooh, that, that was an ego hit, you know, or, or, you, or you made a, a decision from the ego or you felt disappointment. That was an ego thing. You just become more aware of it. 
mm-hmm. and it's just grist for the mill, you know. And and then every year, hopefully, you're a greater version, more expanded, more spacious, and so that somebody can drive up behind me and call me a name, and I can say, "Really, God bless you, brother." <laughs> My mother yeah. wouldn't like that. <laughs> yeah, I, I have a um, habit of of driving. Like I'm not a snail out there, uh-huh. but I'm not like Mario Andretti or right. something, you know, I kind of drive like five miles over the speed limit. I'm yeah. usually like in the center or the right, right lane. I'm listening to a podcast or a book and I'm, yeah. you know, I'm just like not worried about getting somewhere too fast, but that is annoying to other people behind me from time to time. Yeah. 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 And so, <clears throat> you know, it happens probably three or four times a year where someone starts honking at me <laughs> like, <clears throat> and I've picked up this response to that where I essentially pretend that I think they recognize me from somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll pull up at a red light and I'll be like, Hey, what's up? And I'll smile and I'll wave at them. And like, they're mad. Like, do I know you from the dead show or like whatever, you know? And, uh, um, generally that diffuses, it either confuses them or diffuses the situation. Confuse or diffuse. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, one um, thing I've heard you say as it relates to fear, um, because a lot of people are still holding a lot of fear. And I'm not just talking about fear related to, you know, the pandemic or politics yeah, or, yeah. or certainly that. Yeah. But just fear within their own lives, fear of failure, even fear of success in, in many times. I think in more cases it's that. Yeah. yeah. How do we deal with fear in our lives? The way I, I, I tell people, don't, try to, don't ever try to get rid of the fear. Like you just said, some people have fear of failure, or their fear of success, their fear of the criticism they're going to get, get if they fail. Mm-hmm. You know, So I try to let people know that people in the human condition, they're going to talk about you either way. If you succeed, you're going to be talked about. Oh, he must have done something. You know, if you fail, they're going to talk about you. So you have to kind of take other people's opinion of you out of the equation. And you have to walk in the direction of your dream, you know, your vision, your purpose. And you take your fear with you. You don't try to get rid of it. Now, fear is an energy. It's an egoic energy of anxiety about the future. So you, you, you walk baby steps in the direction of your purpose and then fear will slowly turn to excitement because it's just energy. But if you start to take baby steps, then that fear becomes excitement. Then it becomes enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. It actually changes the frequency. But the key is you have to actually walk in the direction of something positive. You can't just sit there and say, oh, I'm going to meditate my fear away or I'm going to just get rid of fear. I think it, 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 when you take st- certain steps, some people are afraid. I was talking to a lady, um, I don't like to say middle age, but you know, she, she, had, she had thought her life was over mm. and she was afraid to go back to school. You know, she's going to be the oldest person in college and all, all of these kind of thoughts. And I said, you know, is your dream still alive in you? You want to, she said, yes. I said, okay, go enroll and take this one class. Don't, you don't have to take six classes. Mm-hmm. So she did. She was nervous. She's the oldest person in line, all of this. She takes a class. She gets excited. Yeah. She loves being a student. And she takes three classes. 
Now she's into the excitement mode. And ultimately, it turned to enthusiasm. And people talked about her. She could hear people snickering a little bit from time to time. Even her kids like, Mom, what are you doing? You know, until she graduated. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Then she was laughing. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting if you just are able to isolate the sensation of anxiety, for example, like the, like butterflies in your tummy or something like that. Yes, yes, And if you are able to uh, refrain from assigning like valence or saline, don't label it. Yes. Because that feeling that literally the sensation itself is the difference between the feeling of excitement and the feeling of anxiety is basically nothing. It, it's just the valence that you assign to that, it. That is so true. And that's what we learn in meditation. Mm-hmm. You know, as you say, these are sensations. Why do we label them anything? There was a lady at, uh, recently that had some kidney issues. She had me do some prayer work on her for healing. I saw her the next week. She was doing better. But she said, I had this pain here. And I said, why don't we not call it pain? Why don't we say this is, is an intense, there's an intense sensation there. And she lit up. So when I saw her lately, she said it was an intense sensation, but now it's dissolving. I stopped calling it pain. Mm. It's, it was a sensation. You know, she's still doing, going to the doctor. She's still doing those medical things she needs to do. But she took the label off of it all and just says there's a sensation there. Mm. Why do I have to call this pain? Yeah, it's so interesting. Before we started recording, you were, um, I was talking to you about a challenge that I was having managing the weight of some people that have just come to a retreat that my oh, wife right, and I led. Right. And, um, and it was, a, I can draw the parallel to numerous kind of functional and integrative medicine doctors that I really respect more on the physio- physiological side. Right, right. Where you said, well, yeah, people might have these stories of intense trauma, or you might have a story related to a dysfunctional kidney, but what you see is the actual, what's actually working yes. in someone yeah. and not what's in needs repair. Right. It's a part of the training that I, yeah. that I went through over the years of actually looking for and then intuiting the wholeness that's intrinsic in all of us. Mm-hmm. So, Basic psychology is looking for pathology, right? You know, what's wrong and how we're going to fix it. You know, I train people to look for what's whole and to actually pull that out until that becomes the greater identity. And then from there, there becomes guidance and wisdom and direction as to how to deal with the pathology or, 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 or it dissolves because a lot of it is thought forms, a lot of it's perception, That's a right. lot of it's uh, an interpretation of an experience that has now condensed itself into an experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's a training. It's spiritual, it's spiritual therapy. Yeah. You know. And it also could fall within the parentheses of, of cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, you know, we have a negativity bias towards ourselves. Yes. Right. <laughs> I like using those words too. I like to say that the mind has a negativity bias, that yeah. bias towards negativity. It just looks yeah. for it. And part of that is natural for, for, for just a biological imperative to yeah, exist. To survive. To yes. survive. But we're not on the Serengeti here. Right. We're, we're in a cabin. Right. In Laurel Canyon. So, you know, but still we have this proclivity to have a negative self image. 
And so, you know, sometimes I even need to sit down and do something as basic as write down positive affirmations about myself. Right, right, right. Um, just as a reminder. Right. Of like, yeah, I'm not all bad. Right, right, right. And, and then that bias towards negativity is exacerbated by the news. Yeah. It's exacerbated by what we're fed on a daily basis. Social media, news, we're going to get the lowest of the lowest of the human experience and we have a tendency to believe that that's really what's happening on the planet. But out of 8 billion people, you know, all 8 billion people are trying to steal and rob and plunder and rape. And, you know, they're not trying to do that. They're trying to survive yeah. pretty much, you know. And, and so we have to learn to actually look for that which is working because we haven't killed ourselves yet. We haven't destroyed. So something's working. Something's working. Something, something's bigger than us happening. And so we need to pay attention to that until it becomes the activity of our awareness. Mm -hmm. You know, we're actually living in a different, I think, living in a different world, actually. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's easy to become numb and then paralyzed and then very pessimist, pessimistic right. in the face of the enormity of the world's problems. But, you know, we can call forward right. instead of always calling out, I mean, you know, and live... In positivity, right? Because what else are we going to do? Well, an optimist is not a person that doesn't believe that bad things aren't happening. There are issues. Yeah. An optimist is just an individual that knows there are solutions to issues. And so what happens is we birth compassion rather than uh, disengagement from the world. We have compassion, yeah. you know, so when we see suffering, we don't just turn our head away from it and pretend it's not there. Uh, we don't go into heavy anxiety about it to the best of our ability, yeah. but we grow in compassion, you know, and then we can ask, like Ram Dass used to, used to uh, bring us to the point of asking, you know, uh, how can I serve? What is it that's mine to do for whatever I'm seeing? You know, is it, is it to meditate? Is it to pray? Is it to donate? Is it to go there and assist? You know, everybody can't do everything, but everybody can do something. And then the moment the energy shifts from helplessness and hopelessness to how can I serve, the energy within us changes. Instead of being depressed, it becomes expressed, but expressed in a positive way, you know, and, and I still believe that the greatest thing an individual can do is actually lift their own awareness. That, that really assists the world. And then you're called to do whatever your gifted area is. If you're a doctor, you heal. If you're an artist, you create. If you're a, a, a chef, you cook really good food. You know, whatever your thing is. Yeah. But you're actually expressing energy from a higher level rather than depressing the energy and saying, woe is me. Becoming right. depressed. Mm. Expressing versus depressing. Right. It's a beautiful way of putting it. I mean, I think a lot of it is an ability to honestly be here now. Right, right. Um, not be mired in the injury of our pasts or projecting those past traumas into the future. Yes. 
as anticipated negative memories. Right, right. Yeah. Anticipated negative memories. <laughs> but that's what they are. Because, yes. Because it goes yeah. into like a Groundhog Day loop. That's it. You know, you're just living your past over and over and over, over again. It. Yeah. We're not even. And then you're projecting it onto other people thinking that they're doing it. Yeah. And we're not <laughs> even anxious about the thing that makes us anxious. We're anxious about the th- about being anxious right. about the thing that makes us anxious. Right, right. And then we're anxious about the being anxious about the thing that makes us anxious. We're feeling guilty about being anxious because we're on the path. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're just here now, right. then all that stuff seems like fluff. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Cause so often a person is so anxious about something that has even happened. And I'll say, you know, what's going on? Well, you know, this happened and then this broke and I'm, I say, yeah, but can can you do anything about that right now? No. Okay. So why don't you just be still and let the right answer come that's going to guide you if that happens. But why why do you want to waste your energy worried about something that hasn't even happened yet? And then you're actually creating the condition for it to happen. Maybe not that particular fear. But as you know, yeah. your body doesn't know. So your body starts to produce toxic chemicals. I've never worried myself out of a problem. Yeah. It's you impossible. Know. What do you call worry? I think you have a great phrase. It's like for paying it. interest on money you haven't borrowed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear that one. I, knew, I think you called it prayer in reverse once. Yeah, it's but. mentally rehearsing. <laughs> mentally and emotionally rehearsing what you don't want. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. So you, you're actually yeah. praying in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. God. Phantoms of our own projection. Yeah. I want to talk about loneliness for a minute. I I recently did kind of a deep dive into loneliness and where we are with loneliness in this country. And our Surgeon General Vivek Murthy wrote a book about loneliness as the great epidemic. Right. Um, right. There was a study that came out of BYU a couple of years ago that equated loneliness um, to Mm -hmm. smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Really? From an all-cause mortality perspective, being lonely is equal to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Right. And I read another statistic, 58% of all Americans claim that they eat every meal alone. 58%. Yeah. I was like, come on. I had to triple check it. All three meals? (laughs) Or, uh, I mean, yeah. I, mean, I do eat one meal by myself. I like to eat by myself <laughs> from time to time. Yeah, yeah. But this is actually where I'm going with it. So you once, we were having a conversation once, I think it was on a podcast, and you once said something that has always stuck with me. I've always given proper credit for it. Um, where you said, loneliness is a form of loneliness with yourself. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of touched me very deeply. Um, now you manage to balance kind of extroversion and introversion in a very homeostatic yeah. kind of way. Of course, that's a, a rare skill. Yeah. Well, I, I, when I was younger, I was more introverted. I mean, I had moments of being able to come out, tell a joke or, you know, but for the most part, I was insular. I was very inside of myself. And then as I got older, I had the capacity to, you know, it it happened, it would happen spontaneously at some times. I I can remember when I was a teenager, 
I was in a program called Teen Stay in School, and they would pick us from high school to go to the radio station every week and speak on the radio, uh, encouraging people to stay in school. I was always nervous about it, but as soon as that red light went on and we were recording you, you're live, something would happen to me, and I would be the most articulate person in the world. Was, <laughs> and then as soon as it went off, I would be inside again. Mm -hmm. um, when I was graduating from um, one of the schools, a school of ministry, uh, people were prophesying as to what kind of ministries people would have. This person's going to have a really big ministry. They said, but Michael... He's a mystic. He's going to have a small ministry. It's going to be about 30 or 40 people because he likes to teach meditation. He's really an individual who knows how to go deeply into prayer. He's not going to really attract big crowds because he doesn't have that um, charisma vibration. He's more of a, a quiet guy. Hmm. And this is what some of the people were saying about me. So interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah. So both, I have both aspects. You know, I, I like to be by myself. I like to meditate and I like to, I, I'm, I'm okay by myself. I, I tell people that if you don't love yourself by yourself, you're going to be difficult in a relationship mm. because you're going to try to get your happiness from the relationship rather than if you like yourself by yourself, you're going to bring happiness to the relationship. So I like being alone, but yeah. I like people. I'm a, I'm a very social person. I like people. Yeah. So I have, I have both. Well, I think that's the most evolved yeah. form of human connection. First, basically, your social needs are met yeah. through your connectivity with your community. Right. But your social needs are also met by yourself. Absolutely. Because you have a deep connection and security with who you are. And, and you know, it's funny because I always think about you when I'm at a party mm -hmm. and I'll be talking to someone and they'll be looking over my shoulder mm -hmm. and, you know, scanning the room for <laughs> someone potentially more important to talk to than me. Uh, yeah. You know, that could be almost anyone at the party. Um, and I don't take offense right. at that, honestly. I right. used to. Yeah. But you're, you pop into my head and I was like, you know what, Jeff, this is not a reflection on you. It might be a reflection on how many Instagram followers you have, <laughs> but it's really a reflection on them is that they're so insecure with themselves right. that they need the approval of someone else in the room right. that's more important than you. Right. So I just say, okay, well, it's whatever. It's very interesting. I, yeah. I, 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 there was a woman that um, came up to me after a service one time. Who was, was staying in a parking lot. And we were talking. And she said, I don't believe this. I said, what? She says, I'm actually standing here talking to you. I said, yes. She said, I'm not important. I said, yes, you are. You're important. You're, you're, you know, you're an image and likeness of God. And she said, you know, I belong to this other spiritual community. She says, I never had a conversation with the teacher, personal. Mm -hmm. She said, I was there for like 15, 20 years. I never talked to him. You know, he would always finish speaking and he'd go somewhere and he'd be with certain people. And he says, you're out here talking to everybody. I said, yeah, why not? She says, yeah, this is my home. <laughs> she said, you're accessible. I yeah. said, well, I am. I'm not accessible all the time. I have other things to do, but I'm not going to separate myself from people. Mm -hmm. You're the most important person right now because I'm talking to you. Yeah. You know. I've never known you not to be present in that way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the biggest gift that we can give everyone in the world right now. 
It's just the present of our presence when we're there. Right. Just be all there. Just be there for them and with them. Yeah, I, I like people. I, I, yeah. I, I like people. I, yeah. You know, I, I, have, I remember I had a colleague. Uh, he had a spiritual community. And I used to always wonder how it was going to be for him because he didn't like people. Yeah. I said, why would, you get in, why, would you, why would you have a calling to serve you don't even like people. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a thought. Yeah, that, that is a strange. It was very funny. Just this morning, I was trying to get out and move the body before yeah. I have an interview. So I took a walk up the hill here. I come, go up there. I do some pull-ups and some push-ups. I come back down. Yeah. There's a, And then I'm a little late getting back down the hill. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of in a hurry. Um, and there's a woman who has pulled over to the side of the road whose car, whose hood is up, mm-hmm. her car is obviously broken down. Right. I'm walking by and I say, you know, I need to get down the hill and <laughs> see Michael, but this woman looks a little bit, she's sweaty and a little right. bit frazzled. So I said, okay. I walk over. I said, like, what's going on here? <laughs> like, I don't know a lot about cars. Right, yeah, mechanic. <laughs> I'm not a mechanic. <laughs> I was like, open up a chest cavity. I could probably point some things out. Um, but, um, but she's like, oh yeah, like, you know, I filled my antifreeze up and, you know, now it's, it's empty again and it's kind of smoke, everything's smoking. Oh, well, you must have a leak there. And she's like, and I don't have AAA. I was like, listen, you can just call AAA right now and sign up on the phone. Right. And, and that's kind of how they honestly sell a lot of right, memberships right, right, right. because it's sort of like you crisis driven, <laughs> you know, <laughs> crisis driven meditation does not work. Yeah. Crisis driven AAA enrollment sometimes works. And she's like, oh my God. It's a great idea. And, you know, I sat there while she called and she called and she got going on it. It was clear that it was all going to happen. Right. Like, right. I waited. Like, blew me a little kiss. Yeah. I was like, okay. Yeah. yeah. I like thing. people. Yeah, you like people. <laughs> yeah. But going back to your previous point about loneliness, mm-hmm. you know, and going back to meditation, there, there comes a moment where you can be alone without being lonely. I mean, yeah. that's, that's part of what occurs. Right. And because when you're lonely, you're like, you're like um, looking for that connection, but that connection is outside of you. Mm-hmm. You know, you want a crowd, you want somebody to come visit you and nothing's wrong with that at all. But there does come a moment, a moment when, when, uh, through your meditative practice where you're okay to be alone Yeah, and you don't call it loneliness. You just call it being alone. Yeah. Or the chosen solitude right. or something like that. Yes. You choose it. You choose it. It's a, fort- yeah. a fortress of solitude. Hmm. And when I, when I come home in the evening and my house is empty, it's like, oh, this is beautiful. I can meditate in any room I want. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and if somebody's there, you know, I have kids and grandkids yeah. and, and uh, they like being around Baba. You know, I love that too. I love it. You know, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, but if by myself, I'm, I can sit anywhere, read, do nothing. Right. So this, well, I think what this really comes back to again is the non-association with the ego. So you don't hold, you don't judge yourself through the eyes of society or other people. You don't necessarily, yeah. And you never win. No, you never win. If you want to go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) It's right here and available for you. Think about what other people are thinking about you. That's the fast pass. Yeah, yeah. you're right there. You're in the express lane. I'm wanting to be liked by everybody. Ooh, you're right there. That's hell. Yeah, because you know you can never quench that thirst. If you are judging yourself through what society thinks of you or 
you know, the make of your car, the size of your house. There's always a fancier car. There's always a fancier it's house. Always, absolutely. It's always. You can never, you can never be satisfied by that which doesn't satisfy. It's, just, it's an impossibility. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So you, you have to you have to get it from within. You know, this, this is old, simple stuff. Yeah. But it doesn't mean anything without some modicum of practice. That's it. Just just a little bit of practice, and people will see results. It's like. They'll notice, you know, you won't, you won't get the fancy lights and cameras. Oh, Satori, I'm enlightened. But people will notice, oh, this thing here used to bother me. It doesn't bother me anymore. Yeah. I still don't like it. I have a preference that this, a thing, this thing doesn't happen. But it doesn't knock me off center anymore. You see your growth, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, you f- find that space. Mm-hmm nanometer by nanometer you right. can grow that space right that is that space between stimulus and response so it's right. that space that gave you the wherewithal not to respond in that parking lot right absolutely um yeah because yeah. Reverend Kathleen was more responsive than I was <laughs> right. she's like she's like what 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 this happens to you you know it's like this happens to you <laughs> you gonna do anything you know we're going to go watch a movie, Kathleen. <laughs> We're going to go do a fantasy right now and have a great time. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about relationships, particularly relationships that, that go astray. Yeah. Because this is something that everyone can relate to, is being betrayed by someone that they love or that they loved or that they were counting on. And this can lead to, again, a lot of suffering um, because you can hold that ember of resentment waiting to throw it, but who's getting burned? Who's getting burned? Yeah, absolutely. How do you deal with that kind of suffering related to betrayal in relationships? I think uh, that's the deepest and hardest thing to forgive. You can forgive a stranger. I, those guys have called me names. I don't know them. Yeah, it's easy to forgive. You can give. You can forgive acquaintanceships that they broke a promise. They, you know. But somebody in which you are in an intimate relationship, whether it's a a mate or even a parent or a brother, somebody that's really close to you, that comes under the heading of betrayal. Those are the most difficult ones to um, to forgive. However, you still have to forgive. Or else you are creating a cesspool within your own soul that's going to prevent you from moving forward. So forgiveness is the key, ultimately. And the way I look at it is you never really lose. I mean, people think they're in a win-lose situation. You're in a win-learn situation. You change the lose. to What, what is your learning here? Again, yeah. oftentimes people need help. They need some kind of assistance to actually navigate through this because the emotions are so raw. You know, that she's terrible, he's terrible, he did this, she didn't do this, whatever the case may be. So you need someone to help you come back to, you know, what is it that you're feeling within yourself? This, this particular experience happened. You were betrayed. That's your perception. What are you feeling about yourself based on what they did or didn't do? So when you analyze those feelings, 
ultimately, or I would say emotions, those emotions have a tendency to be lies. They're not true about you, mm. but they're so raw. So a person can help you dissect it and see that they're lies. So you, so the first forgiveness, all forgiveness is self-forgiveness. You're forgiving yourself. You, you're, you're just dissecting those lies. I'm not, I'm, I'm not that bad, I'm, whatever, whatever the lie is. And then you're able to forgive the other. You take your learning and you move on. So it's, a, it's like a three-step process. It's like you have to accept what is, total acceptance. This is what happened. This relationship is over. This is no, no wishful thinking, no wish I woulda, coulda, no I shoulda done this, they shoulda done that. That doesn't exist. Yeah. That's wishful thinking, that's a waste of energy. Yeah. This is it, this relationship, the way it was before is over. That's one. Stage two, harvest the good. What did you learn in this relationship? What did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about life? What did you learn about relationships? You harvest the good. Hmm. Stage three, forgive everything else. So you're actually able to move forward and come out a better version of yourself. If you stay in wishful thinking, that takes you into blame and shame. And, the, and, and, and just so we know here, blame and shame are not spiritual practices. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> blame and shame are not spiritual Not practices. in the Gospels? No, no they're not no. there. <laughs> Turn the other cheek, baby. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, uh, and so with these, in these stages, you know, they're not linear. They just, yeah. you know, you have to bounce back between <laughs> them. And you know, somebody asked me uh, a couple of years ago about my relationships, you know what I mean? And I've been married twice. And they were saying, you had two failed marriages. I said, no, I didn't. I had two <laughs> failed marriages. You're not gonna, I'm, I wasn't gonna allow someone else to give my, a narrative about my life. I said, I married my high school sweetheart. You know, we grew apart to the day she passed over. Buddies, friends. Second relationship, we did monumental, very beautiful things. It was, it was not a failure. It was very beautiful until that was no longer tenable. And we went our separate ways, but I had no failure. You know, somebody thinks because you're not married to the end of your life that you failed. Yeah. No, that's the end of that particular lesson. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's often how we assign valence to particular events in our life. <clears throat> I interviewed a grief specialist named David Kessler. You probably know David. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he ran me through this exercise that I found was pretty interesting. He was like, Jeff, he did this live. So <laughs> it was kind of harrowing in the moment, but he said, Jeff, um, tell me about something, an event in your youth that was very impactful for you. So of course my mind went to the negative. Say, so, yeah, my parents had this like horrible acrimonious divorce and God, I thought I could rescue him. And, you know, I took it upon myself to try to bring them together and I couldn't, and it was very painful. Mm -hmm. And he was like, okay, now recount that same event for me with no judgment, with no valence, just the event itself. Yeah, yeah. And I said, yeah, my parents grew apart and got a divorce. Right. Okay. And he's like, now that's the last step. Recount that experience with any positive valence that you possibly could about the impact that that had on your life. Right. And I was like, well, my parents got a divorce. It was really painful in the moment, 
but I grew up a lot and became a really compassionate human being and a very good partner. And, you know, it was like all of a sudden he like flipped the script <laughs> right, right, on my right, life. I right. was like, but I like that old version, that yeah, victim the version. Yeah. Eagle like yeah, the old yeah. version. That's right. the identification with the pain. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes in workshops, I'll have people do very similar things. You know, they'll say, well, my dad, you know, he was emotionally not connected to me and he did this, he did, you know, and I'll say a very similar thing. Say, because your parents did A, B, C, and D, what lesson did you, what, what, where did you grow? What, did, yeah. what quality was born because of what you saw was a deficit? Because they weren't the Cosbys, they weren't Ozzy and Harriet, they weren't like the perfect people, you know? Mm -hmm. And those people aren't perfect, yeah. they just on television. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then people start saying, you know, I became very self-dependent, I became very, I'm able to navigate in the world without depending on a lot of people. You know, they started to curate all the places where they grew because of, like you just did, mm. by just flipping the script and seeing. Perhaps you chose your parents for that reason. Perhaps you came here, got those lessons to be who you're supposed to be, to do what you're supposed to do. Their job was just to get you here. Your job, the mess the horse you rode in. Your job is to find your path. <laughs> they gave you food, water, shelter, clothes. Everything else is a bonus, <laughs> you know. That's right. And they were doing the best they could. And they were given, doing the best they could. Yeah, given the situation. But, you know, it takes it takes some time. Yeah. You know, it's funny about forgiveness. Um, I interviewed a guy named Robert Enright, who is a forgiveness expert at the University of Wisconsin. Interesting guy, right? Writes books just about forgiveness. I like that forgiveness expert. Yeah. And, um, and I was talking to him about the nature of how I've experienced forgiveness in my life. And yeah, there's some teachings obviously that we know it's like, it's a gift that you give yourself, right. not just a gift you give someone else. Right. And you know, you can still hold people accountable yes. for their actions. Um, and it can be one way you're, you're in control of forgiveness. This is not reconciliation. Reconciliation takes a, a dance partner. Um, but one thing that, you know, but, the, and even though I know those lessons cognitively, mm -hmm. forgiveness for me, at least starts up here mm -hmm. in the head mm -hmm. and sometimes takes a very long and circuitous route to migrate the to here. The longest path is to the heart. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly it. <laughs> do, you, do you find that that's the normal For pathway? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a story that uh, Dr. Howard Thurman told mm. a number of years ago. Now, I'll tell you the story, but he he wouldn't recognize the story. Yeah. You know, but it, it inspired me. Um, and this this man had been betrayed by someone. And, and the, the, the unforgiveness, he could tell, was burning up his own being, you know. And so before he went to bed at night, he prayed to forgive. He just, he, he was really sincere. He said, God, angels, whatever, please help me to forgive. So he falls asleep and an angel comes and, and lifts him and teaches him the laws of the universe and shows him that the unforgiveness is really causing havoc on his own being. That all of those thought forms were actually reproducing themselves and causing decay of his immune system, toxic chemicals, he was prematurely aging, mm -hmm. that his unforgiveness was actually working against himself. Yeah. 
So he wakes up the next morning. He's fresh. He said, oh, I got it. You know, I'm, I'm going to forgive. I'm going to set this man free from my life. And by the next couple of days, the unforgiveness is still there. So he prays again, deep sincerity. I try to forgive. Please help me to forgive. He falls asleep. Another angel comes, lifts him up, and takes him and shows him the man's life who had betrayed him from the time of his birth through his whole incarnation. And he was able to see that the moment of that betrayal, that individual could not have done otherwise. All the things that had happened to him, yep. all of his reactions to life, at that moment, he was doing the best he could do. That it wasn't personal. That was just who that individual was at that precise second. Yeah. And he saw, he said, oh, if he could have done better, he would have done better. It wasn't personal. That was his own level of maturity or immaturity. He wakes up with a bunch of zest. He's like, okay, I can forgive. <laughs> a few days later, he's still he's holding on. It. He prays again. The third angel shows, comes, takes him to beyond time and space where souls are being emerging from the eternal and shows the birth of this being. And he gasped because he realized that being was him, mm. that there was no separation, yeah. that that being in him and he emerged from the same space and they were one and the same. And that a lot of what he was doing was projecting unhealed stuff, interpretation. And then that's when he was able to totally forgive, hmm. combining those three elements. One, all forgiveness is self-forgiveness. If he knew better, he would have done better. And that's a reflection of who I am. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That is a powerful story. I remember a couple years ago, seeing the headlines on some news website. It was about a young Muslim kid that had gone into a um, grocery store in Boulder mm -hmm. and shot up a bunch. Of and then there was a heroic story about st stopping him, et cetera. Right. I think six or eight people died. Mm -hmm. In the same day, there was a tornado, mm -hmm. I think in Mississippi. And that was also in the headlines, but below, mm -hmm. that killed, I think, 12 people. Mm -hmm. And we have no issue forgiving the tornado. Right. You know, it's just a natural cause. Maybe some people associated with environmental right. degradation or something, but more or less, it's like, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy. Im impersonal force. Right. But because we lop a moral judgment and assume that this kid had free will, we have a much, much harder time, understandably, mm -hmm. forgiving that act. Right, right. Uh, even though both things happened on the same day, one event even took more lives to the degree that that's even important. Right. Um, obviously important to the family members, but not from a greater lesson perspective. And so, you know, I think oftentimes we, again, you know, we assume that every every step along this path, there was the opportunity for free will. Mm -hmm. And I think that th that deserves greater examination. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, these are the hardest questions. You know, right. I, there's a woman, Eve Ensler, that like went to Dachau and forgave Hitler. Right. You know, 
or and you're Rwanda like, or South yeah. Africa or apartheid. Right. Or, or, and you're like, how, yeah. how, how do you find that? Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 that's going to the depth. Yeah. Or the, the, the families, you remember the, that kid Dylan Roof that went into that congregation in South right. Carolina. Right. And shot up all of these African-American worshipers. Yes. And then during his trial, those families came, the families yes. of the deceased came and forgave him. Yes. I mean, if you ever want a moment, an emotional moment on YouTube, right. go watch that. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I'm trying, I, 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 I'm working with um, this girl who went to jail 12 years ago. She's up for parole now. Um, and, you know, so we're writing letters to see that she gets out. And she was in Santa Barbara. And um, she had been driving drunk. So she pulled off on the side of the road. She realized she couldn't drive. So she just was sleeping on the side. And these two men were creeping up on the side. And she saw them out of her rearview mirror. Hmm. Now, recently, she had been raped. So she had all this intensity, intensity in her. Yeah. So she saw these guys coming up. And she got so nervous that she, she started the car and she took off. And she ended up running into another car and she killed somebody. And it happens to be somebody in the district attorney's office of Santa Barbara. And, you know, she didn't try to get away or anything. So anyway, she was sentenced to like 12 to 15 years to life because of this. And right before that, same thing happened with another lady. She was driving drunk. She killed somebody. She got probation. Who she killed wasn't as important as this person in district attorney's office. Yeah. Okay, so anyway, I'm thinking about this because I wrote the letter. I know I know the girl, and and um, and I just happened to see somebody sent me the so-called other side or getting people to write letters to keep her in jail. This woman killed so the district, mm -hmm. the the investigator for the, and I'm like I, I I forgot that I forgot like. They're still holding revenge after she'd been in jail. She, she, couldn't yeah. see, she didn't see her daughter grow up. Her daughter's now in college. I'm like, you're holding on to revenge? She's already been in jail 15 years. Mm -hmm. And you want people to write to keep her in jail the rest of her life? I, I couldn't wrap my attention around it. You know, it was like for a moment. It was like, and, and then I could understand, okay, they lost a family member. But how long are we going to hold on? To holding this person in jail for an accident. She didn't go into yeah. the, the church and shoot a she, bunch of yeah. people. You know, she thought she was getting away. And the people that were sneaking up were police officers. Uh, they were they were trying to see who was sleeping in the car. Oh God. You know. And she didn't she didn't know they were police officers. Of course, yeah. she, um, and she's just well, she's the most beautiful girl. Mm. And I said, these people are writing letters to keep and the way they're framing it. So-and-so killed our friend right? as if she did it on purpose. Yeah. You know, and, uh, yeah. I just want to just say, when, when are we going to like, when's, when's the revenge going to be over about this? Right. You know, she didn't do it on purpose. She's 15 years in jail. She's like um, helping other prisoners in jail. She's taken all these classes. She's like a model person, you know? It's like, yeah. Well, this is where we need to migrate to restorative justice yes. versus just crime and punishment or anti just instead of just punishing, we have to really examine how, how do we manage the, the harm that was caused yeah. all, in, in every dimension. Right. And at this juncture, the harm is really on her. Yeah. 
So I don't mean I don't know the story, but it's yeah, sounds, yeah. She's it, it, I guess I'm kind of close to it. So yeah. now I'm forgiving the people right, wanting to yeah. wanting, to, <laughs> wanting to cause more revenge. Right. You know, and yeah. keep her in jail. She'll never be able to see her daughter. Yeah. You know, I said I think I think we've done enough for this young lady. So the last topic I want to probe a little is um, how meditation can be useful uh, in connection with grief. Yeah. Um, I know you lost your dad a couple of years ago. Yeah. You came up to Topanga and we actually had a, a nice moment up there. Mm-hmm. Um, how did, 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 was meditation a big part of your healing there? And, and how would you recommend people I think that because I'd been meditating for so long that um, the the, the grief was in a field of a a person that meditates. Mm -hmm. So as a matter of fact, I found out my father passed in between services. I had just given the nine o'clock service and, and my brother or someone came up to me and said, dad just passed over. And I think I went to the side, uh, and I, I think I, I just cried and then came back on stage and spoke. And I, and I, and I actually shared what happened with the congregation and, 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 and shared. And it, it was just, it was a total like release. And, um, and then going forth from there. So I think the meditation, I don't want to just say this meditation, what the, the, um, the effects of meditation is that you're, you're spacious. And in my father's case, he was a judge and he had retired and he was going to teach in the university. But my mother had passed. And when my mother passed, he stopped living. Mm. His plans that he had to retire from the bench and go into college and teach law, he, just, he didn't do it. He, he stopped living for six years. Wow. He still read books and things like that, but he stopped exercising. Uh, he just did nothing. He was really upset because his mother, my mother, was younger than him. He just assumed in his mind that she right. was, she was, he was going to go before her. Right. And so, as as hard as I tried to get him involved in life again, hey, just walk up and down the street, man. Let's exercise. Let's do this. He did take herbs for me. He did take smoothies, but that was pretty much about it. <laughs> So we, we knew the time was coming, yeah. you know. And so when it, when it happened, it wasn't a shock, but it was a little bit of a shock, you know. But I think that um, uh, every culture grieves differently. For instance, there's a, a, a group in West Africa, when a person passes over, they take all of their grief and let it all come out at one time where this, they use this person that passed over and they cry and they wail and they scream, not just because this person has passed, but for everything that has happened in the past few years of their life. Mm. And then when they finally get it all out, then they move into celebration, you know. There is something so powerful about collective grief. Yeah. Um, and it often, as you described, is is followed by some form of collective joy. Yeah, I the most poignant example of this in my life was at nine eleven. I was living in New York City. Yes, 
And obviously there was tremendous grief in the moment. Right. But I will say in the aftermath of the grief, for the two or three months afterwards, being in New York was sort of strangely wonderful place to be. Yeah, there's deep compassion. Oh my God. I mean, people helping each other, high-fiving on the the subway, buying each other drinks at the bars and stuff like that. It was like life had a different meaning. And at that particular time, I remember the president had an opportunity to actually curate that and expand that, except he went to the wrong country and and started bombing (laughs) and looking for weapons of mass destruction. Mass destruction. You know, he, he, he used that for, for another, another insidious purpose. Yeah. And, but you know, we we can't think our presidents being advanced in people spiritually, it's not what they're called to do, you know, but, but uh, yeah, I remember that. I mean, that, that just wasn't in New York. That was across the nation. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was a lightning rod in New York, but that whole sense of we're in a community together and, and the love ethic was so high. Yeah, that was that was very very powerful, but I, th- I think just the whole, you know, everybody grieves differently, you know. And what I try to share with people, I just did a a, a service a couple of days ago, and I, I I shared that one, you know, we're celebrating their aliveness based on the memories. Memories will fade, so we're also celebrating the fact that they've emerged from the eternal. And there's no such thing as death. And then thirdly, I said, basically, instead of asking the question, what is the meaning of their death? Whether some people are dying different ages in these days, you know, you ask the question, how can I give my life meaning based on knowing that person? Mm-hmm. And you take the, their main quality. Like This person was very creative. Mm-hmm. You know, this person was very um, like a Renaissance woman. You know, she did so many things with her life. Uh, you take the quality at the proper time, you memorialize her life by taking on that quality and living that quality in her name. Mm. So you're actually transmuting the grief, which is energy of loss, transmuting that grief into I am living for her. I'm going to be more creative today. I'm going to be mm. more loving today. I'm going to be more giving today. You actually transmute it mm. in, in that way. And, I think in the Sufi Muslim tradition, after 40 days, that's what you do. You grieve for 40. 41st day, you actually create something in their name. It could be energetically. It can be a piece of art. It could be doing something in their name, but you take the grieving energy and transmute it into a higher frequency. Mm. You know, so you're not just wallowing in it. Yeah. Yeah. Living meditation. mm, You find that post-traumatic growth moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's there's a number of traditions, like in Stoicism, Memento Mori, or Buddhism has, I think it's called Marana Sati. And these are mostly reflections on one's own mortality. Yeah. Um, and it, they seem morbid at first, but they're not morbid at all. Because by focusing on the idea that life is fleeting and you don't know when you're going to go know. and you can't take anything with you. Nothing. Then that... <laughs> You get a, a moment of Satori there yeah. of like, but I'm alive oh, right, right, right here, right, right, right now. Right. And so what it does is it actually fills you with vigor and, and a sense of gratitude and effusiveness right. that you can bring into your life. And so 
And we have such a, when we talk about fear, probably the greatest fear as a result of human consciousness is death. Right. You know, we went and killed out all the animals bigger than us for thousands of years. And then the last 150 years, we killed everything smaller than us. You know, so, so, right. <laughs> and, you know it's, now um, we're killing the rainforest. Why? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, you know, we've created all sorts of mythologies, you know, to promise eternal life, et cetera, just because the notion of death seems, um, you know, so troubling. Right. We have so much anxiety and fear around it. Um, so I think becoming comfortable with it. And I think, again, you know, this is, you know, when we can use this meditation practice to understand that even our physical organism is some projection that just kind of arises and subsides. Yeah. Yeah. Time. It's its own thing. It's its own thing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and this is why it's so useful. And, and, and you know, it's like, I, I didn't like most people when I first started with my practice, I hated it. You know, it was really difficult. And I had sort of like a, oh, do I have to go to church again attitude about it? No offense to your church, but spiritual community, spiritual community. Thank you. I mean, like, I just like, it felt like sitting on a cold, hard pew, singing dismal hymns, you know? And then eventually like, you know, because, but I did it. Because like I wanted all these benefits, right, right. You know, like give me the benefits, right, 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 like, right. Give right. me the optimal performance <laughs> and the cortical, the the cortical growth and all these other things. And then finally, I was just like, no, screw that shit. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna just groove here, right. with the present. Just be here, groove, right. Notice things. It's not dismal. Just a nice little grooving. It's, it's sweet. And then the byproducts are just just come along. Yeah. And they shock and surprise you at times. <laughs> yeah. They, they, but you know, I think we're living in the day and age now where the science is caught up yeah. with the mystics to a degree and For they sure. can label all the byproducts in terms of your blood pressure, the coherence of the brain, you know, tonic chemicals, uh, slowing down the aging process, blah, 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 blah. But the real is that connection you get, you know, that's right. The presence of life, love, beauty become so real, mm. you know. And then every now and then you may have a fleeting moment of Satori or a moment of such connection that changes your life forever. Yeah. You never forget. You can't unsee what you've seen mm-hmm. in it, you know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, what's objective and can be measured can be improved. So it's nice to see like your cortisol levels go down or your blood pressure go down and all of the other biomarkers that are impacted by a consistent practice. But as you say, there is a subjective component that is simply the product of direct experience and nothing else. That's That's what the Buddha talked about, direct experience. And you cannot deny it. No. And nor can you prove it, nor do you have any desire to prove yeah. it. But you know what happens? Your character changes. I mean, you actually, you know, that itch of God on your soul. So if I had to assign a metric to it, Michael, this is the way I do it. It's, you can't really, right. of course. Yeah. It's like trying to put words to a feeling. Right. You can try. You can the poet's... <laughs> that is insoluble come close. <laughs> problem. That's why they're so uh, susceptible to vice mm-hmm. and self-harm. It's like oh, they're, they're doing something that they, that's insoluble. Um, 
But when I have moments of pure joy mm-hmm. solely and only for someone else's joy, yes, that to me is a symptom of that feeling of connection. Absolutely. And so, you know, it's almost like a, a spiritual barometer. <laughs> if right. you want one, you're like, yeah. oh. Yes, you've gone beyond comparison. You're actually rooting for yeah. and are in harmony and synchronicity with that person's joy. Yeah. yeah. I'll do that even in like in abundance classes, mm-hmm. get people to actually come to a moment of celebration of somebody else's success as if it's their own. Yes. You know, and then learn to live at that level. Whenever you hear any good news about anybody, it's for you. It's, it's also it. going into the newest fear anyway. It's helping us all. But- you start to live at that level and then the contraction around jealousy and envy and separation begins to dissolve. You actually, your character changes. Mm-hmm. You really are happy for other people's happiness for real. Yeah. That's rare. It's a rare gift. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and then there's the flip side. There's the Karuna side, the identification of someone else's pain yes. as your own. Right. With some form of agency to alleviate that, that suffering. Absolutely. Um, that's what births compassion. Yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Michael, such a treat, man. I love soaking in your wisdom. I'm I'm constantly learning. And yours. I'm well, but I'm I'm constantly learning uh from you really. Um and over the last five years as I've gotten five or six years as I've gotten to know you better, um, even I'm sure you're you're not even aware of it because you're touching so many people, but you've bent the arc of my life in so many different ways. Mm. I'm constantly listening. Mm. And like you say, when you hear someone else say something and uh, you don't plagiarize it or you're not envious of it, you're just like taking that and be like, whoa, that hit me somewhere. And now I can try to build on it. Um, And it's not always what you say, although it often is, it's just the way you are. Um, sometimes speak so loudly. I don't even know what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to get that a lot at, at, at Agape. I used to get that yeah. a lot. People would say, I didn't understand the word you said, but I feel so much better. And I'm going to keep <laughs> coming back and my life is changing. And then they take a few classes. They say, oh, that's what you meant. <laughs> right. I think Howard Thurman has a quote. I, or maybe, no, no, it's an Emerson quote. I think, mm-hmm. anyways, I'll, I'll find it. Mm-hmm. Um Anyways, I appreciate you deeply. And, oh, about the uh, thund- what you are thunder so loudly. I can't hear a word you're saying. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice yeah, one. Yeah. That's, nice that's one. Emerson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what else? So you know, as we as we go out, obviously we we're relaunching this course, the meditations for life yes, challenges. Yes. So that's exciting. And that's Everyone it's ever it. it's evergreen. And yeah. you know, when we when I did that, when we did that, it was obviously in the middle of um, COVID lockdown, but it's. Conditions haven't changed, really. It's for whatever condition yeah. you're going through, because we went through grief, yeah, loss, un- forgiveness. We covered a number of basic human conditions that people grow through That's right. and provided a moment of, of introspection and meditation to, to work through that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like you said, so many people have, have participated in it, and, and I'm still getting a lot of feedback from people, you know, People will say, you got me through COVID. You know? Yeah, I know it. I know. Well, the yeah. timing was divine. Yeah. Um, Did we know that at the time? No, because we made it in advance. Yeah. And then we had planned for it to come out in March 2020. And then, whoa. Yeah. Boy, we were ahead of people it. We need were, it. it was, yeah, we were. Uh, um, it was an intuitive decision. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to intuit those things. Yeah. Um, and then what else? I know you've got the podcast. Podcast, so that's a take, big... take Back Your Mind is happening. And then... Um, 
we will be having uh, uh, Agape's been open. Yeah. But now there's a big, there's a facelift going on. So we're closed for the month of August, in-person closed. Right. Still online at agapelive.com. September 3rd, grand reopening. Mm, exciting. Everybody, everybody come out. It's going to be a great moment. Because it, 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 interestingly enough, before the facelift, it had gotten back to being really big again. Right. Well, I know Marianne was here yeah. maybe a month ago or something, yeah. and she was saying I was with Michael at, at, at service. Yeah. Yes, the day before she was yeah. here, and she was like, it was crazy. It was a yeah. thousand people there. Or yeah. Something. And, and, and the week before was big. It was my birthday, or was the week before or week after? Mm. It's maybe the week before. And then uh, Lisa Nichols spoke at the mm. end of the month. It was, you know, everything was like big. Yeah. So we had to shut it down just for, because they're, yeah. re, they're rebuilding the entire lobby. And oh, beautiful. Restrooms wouldn't be available. So there was no need people coming. We, legally, we couldn't allow people to come yeah. in without restrooms. But so, that'll be nice. Uh, oh, it's going to be, a nice be experience brand new. It's going to be yeah. sweet. It's going to be wonderful. And then we'll have our our ministries will be up and running. And yeah, well, it's meant obviously so much to the regular denizens of Los Angeles. But everyone that comes through here, you know, I always you know looking for tourist things yeah. to do or whatever. I say go see Michael on Sunday, right. And go to the Huntington in Pasadena. Right. <laughs> Those are my two things. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. I now when I when I speak there, I say who's who's here from out of town. Yeah, and there's always these people who, if they have a business trip or a workshop, they build their time in Los Angeles around staying to come to Agape. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. so it's 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 a destination point. Absolutely. Well, yeah. the alumni there speaks for itself. Yeah. Pretty incredible. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we'll do it again. Thanks. We'll do so it much. again, man. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Michael. If you want to take his course on commune meditations for life's challenges, just go to onecommune.com slash challenges and you can watch his course for free for five days. And uh, if you enjoy this show, um, please subscribe on Apple podcasts and leave us a review. If you are a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation. And we try to deliver the best guests and the best experiences and also keep ads to a minimum. It's not one of these shows that just runs promotions for 15 minutes at the top. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is to subscribe to Commune and you'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders like Michael Beckwith. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com slash trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, and certainly not leastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Lobb, Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasnow and I'm here for you.